Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Ian House Show. Today, I'm joined by Gabriella Hoffman. She joined me to talk firstly about the PRO Act. It's one of the many, 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 many crazy bills that Joe Biden and his administration are trying to push forward. So we're going to talk about that. And then she also has some interesting family experiences with communism. So we dig into really her family history and also how we can actually push back against people who are growing to think that communism is a good thing. I hope you'll enjoy it. Gabriella, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Ian. Good to connect with you. So the main reason we kind of came across each other on Twitter is that you were really going hard after what is called the PRO Act. And I didn't actually know really that much about it. I think most Americans are also in that position where it's like one of the, on the surface, less crazy things that Joe Biden is pushing. It doesn't involve giving trillions of dollars to some burning can of garbage somewhere. And so it sort of flies under the radar a little bit. But once you kind of scrape the surface off, I realized just quite how insane this bill, alongside all of the other bills he's pushing, really is. So before we dive in, I know we're going to get into some of the details, but as far more of an expert than me on the subject, we'd love just to give uh, for you to give us just a brief overview into what the PRO Act is for those who, like me, hadn't really heard of it before. Yes, I'll do my best to give a Cliff Notes version because it is so complex and it's even taken someone like me who digests things pretty well to have to absorb it to understand the different caveats associated with it. So it stands for the Protect the Right to Organizing Act. And it sounds innocent and wonderful. They all do. On the they all surface. sound so nice. Yes. <laughs> Un- unfortunately, that's the that's the way that they swindle people and get them hooked in. And this issue isn't really a surprising issue to see kind of shepherded by President Biden. He actually clearly stated he supported this on his campaign website. And he also tweeted it on numerous occasions early on in his campaign for president. And he supported, and and this is where this bill came from, he supported California's Assembly Bill 5, which essentially gave birth to this horrendous piece of legislation. And in this bill, it contains an ABC provision. And I'll defer everyone to the individual prongs, but all those three prongs would make it extremely, when, when applied, excuse me, when applied, those three prongs would make it extremely difficult for, let's say, people who are American workers, and, and we can call people freelancers American workers. It makes it increasingly difficult for American workers who are either self-employed, independent contractors like myself, or people who are contingent workers, maybe they're full-time employees somewhere else, but they do moonlighting on the side. Anyone who does flexible work, I think is a, a more general term, more broad term to make it all understandable. So when this ABC test was applied in California and when they passed it into law, it resulted in a lot of people being displaced from their freelancing jobs, whether they were doing this full-time, part-time on their own whim. And in California, it at least led to 1 million independent contractors losing like their livelihoods. It was very devastating. And National Democrats and a handful of some Republican supporters in Congress, but not allowed contingent, thankfully, and I think most national Republicans are opposed to this, but a handful of congressional Republicans supported the second house version that was introduced and subsequently passed. And in that bill, in addition to containing an ABC provision, which changes flexible workers to employees. So someone who's a flexible worker files 1099 forms. You're not a W-2 employee if you're working for someone full-time. And when they say that this bill is is existing to correct 
misclassification of workers. It actually does the exact thing, yet it misplaces and displaces and mischaracterizes countless different workers, independent contractors, flexible workers. And I worry about this because I myself, like I mentioned just moments ago, am someone who is self-employed and having seen the devastating impact in California and, and they had to pass exemptions, about a hundred exemptions so far. And that still hasn't helped recover people from, from losing their livelihoods or losing different type of contract work. In addition to that prop 22, which kind of helped save Uber and Lyft from kind of the bad, the worst aspects of this bill, AB5, although all aspects of it are pretty bad, but prop 22 was voted in by California residents last fall by a fairly large number of Californians, 58, percent, 56%, um, at least 50%. I'm, I'm probably botching the numbers, but I know at least 52%, between 52, 58%. And you can correct me uh, if you're going to do a, something to follow up this, but at least 50% of voters voted in this bill to carve out exemptions, even for Uber and Lyft, but it doesn't stop there. Several of other states have been pondering a similar ABC type legislation. They tried to do this in New Jersey. It failed. Thankfully, they're contemplating it in New York, uh, they're contemplating it in other blue states. In Virginia, they passed something, I think, that amounts to like uh, strengthening the IRS test, which is what many people want instead. Although the Virginia bill that they passed isn't perfect, but it's not as bad as California's AB5 test. I think it applies to public sector workers, if I'm not mistaken, but that's a little bit uh, wayside of, of what, generally speaking, AB5 does. But Democrats have used AB5 as a model to take this so-called correction of employee law and employer law and labor law more broadly to say, well, all these people working independent contracting jobs or all these individuals working for Uber and Lyft or people who are not W-2 employees, they're exploited by their employers or they're exploited by their clients. And I scratch my head when I hear that and I'm like, I'm not misclassified, I'm not exploited. And it's not me only saying this. You see countless different freelancers also echoing this and sounding the alarm, even though their states haven't had this bill pass yet. So many people saw what happened in California, how much devastation it's already had, the implications with it legally, and also what it does for labor law. And they don't want that to go national. Unfortunately, California is my home state originally, um, beautiful place, but it seems like this microcosm and Petri dish from whence all these horrible policies just kind of take fold nationally and, and go and, and destroy different state legislatures. And California, not surprisingly, of course, would be the first to pilot this program. I'm not surprised there. And also the ABC test, if, if I should also highlight this, it's a 1930s era law. It's a really outdated test. And that's why a lot of proponents of freelancing and those who oppose the PRO Act uh, especially on the grounds of the ABC test, prefer an IRS test, which is a lot less strenuous. It's going to displace fewer people. There was also an independent um, contractor rule that President Trump's Labor Department had actually put into effect. It was supposed to go into effect, I think, last month, and Biden's administration unsurprisingly revoked it. But there are different components to it. Um, but the, the national law itself contains far more egregious provisions in addition to the ABC test. And they're saying, well, it's not California's AB5. This is to correct uh, you know, failures in the labor market. This is to punish employers and to punish those who exploit poor workers. And they also say, get this, they say this is to give people the right to join unions. Last I checked, there's no law 
obstructing or preventing you from joining unions, even in right to work state. I live in Virginia, which is increasingly trending blue, but we're still a right to work state. We were one of the first states to pass right to work legislation. And even in a right to work state, and especially those really, really red states, people have a right to join a union. You can join it if you want, have at it, go to your heart's desire to join it, but also creates a space where workers don't have to join unions. And in the case of freelancers, most of us don't want to join unions. We like the arrangement we have. We like being 1099 filers. We like having different revenue streams. We like pulling from different clients. I'm not exploited by people I work with. I set my own contracts. I negotiate on my own behalf, on my own best interests. And I don't need a, a intermediary or a union intervening on my behalf when I better negotiate my own rates. I negotiate my work terms. And I'm in control of my business. I don't want someone coming in. I mean, we already have enough obstacles as it is. If you file taxes, I think all of us, whether you're an employee or even an independent contractor or freelancer, we all file lots of taxes. I file an income tax. I file self-employment tax, which is 15.3%. It combines social security and Medicaid, which I don't even <laughs> want to think about right now. I'm not, you know, buying into those None of those us are programs. ever going to get it. So that's exciting. <laughs> it's like, I'm, I'm, I just turned 30. Like I'm too young to even contemplate having that. So we're already paying exorbitant amounts of taxes. And even if you're not making a lot of money, if you're not making six figures actively, you still pay a lot. And it's your hard-earned money going away. And, and I think kind of a big picture theme with, with the Pro-X passage, and I'll discuss some of the other provisions with it as well, they want to just collect more in taxes. So the more people who file W-2s, I mean, you're already giving away some in taxes with your 1099 form, but W-2 makes it especially easier for them to milk more taxes from you. But also some other troubling provisions in it, towards the end of the bill, when you peruse through it, you see a provision it doesn't say we're going to revoke right to work but it says at the end of it on page 30 some odd 30 it says we're going to have these sort so-called agreements uh share agreements and that is keyword for revoking right to work legislation and there's also violations to worker privacy in terms of voting in memberships for labor law enthusiasts if you're interested but the ABC test, the complete upending of labor law, basically this is going to be a carve out for big labor and unions who are a fledgling influence. And this is not to be rude towards individual union members. I think many of them got the shaft when Biden's administration decided to cancel the Keystone pipeline. Where are the unions to protect and save their jobs in the event of this? They're nowhere to be found. I mean, they're, they're saying, oh no, you know, we disagree with it, but we're gonna work with the administration. So they're not really looking out for their union members. And I think there is a big divide between individual union members and union leadership and union leadership is especially corrupt. I think a lot of union members wish they don't have to join unions, but that's beside the point. Uh, but, but this is a carve out to big labor to resuscitate them because they are on life support. They did have a little bit of growth in the most recent Bureau of Labor Statistics report. So they went from 10.3% of the workforce in 2019 to last year going to 10.8% in the workforce. So they grew about 5%. However, the gig economy or freelance economy grew from, uh, I think it was 35% of the workforce to 36% of the workforce. So it, it grew uh, from the most recent numbers from Upwork, which is a great authority on freelance economy statistics and trends. So they reported a growth uh, from 57 million participants of the gig economy to uh, 59 million. So a pretty exorbitant growth, and we've seen this workforce grow and grow and grow. 
So you kind of take away from this bill that this is a carve out to special interests in big labor to artificially enhance competition and punish people who are self-employed or partake in flexible work so that unions could be powerful as a political force and to coerce people into these really anti-worker, anti-freedom arrangements. It it intervenes and it impedes on your free will to want to assemble as a business, I think. I don't know if we can extend First Amendment, you know, right right to assembly provisions to it, but there are so many violations this could have in terms of autonomy violations your right to freely assemble as a business, uh, different commerce law violations, labor law violations. And if someone wants to be to, to self-determine and be a business owner, I think obviously it could have some implications there. I'm not a constitutional expert, but I, I feel like there could be some First Amendment and other diff- different type of amendment violations that come with this as well, in addition to all the implications. So I see it really as a, an attack on freedom an attack on small business because one person businesses are also considered small businesses in this country and small businesses run by one or two individuals, or let's say you have a boss and they contract in, uh, contractors and they themselves are not employers per se, but they're also contractors. Uh, eventually those businesses, if they can, and they want, they can become big businesses. So this is kind of a mechanism, this type of framework with freelance work It's a way to usher in business growth, to get people to aspire, to do well, to climb up the economic ladder, to grow from a one-person business or a solopreneur into a corporation or big business, however they want to do it. And this is one of the last few things that really makes this country stand out on pure, unadulterated economic mechanisms that makes us really kind of a revolutionary leader. Other countries across the world, they have freelancing, but they, I think in your native homeland in the UK, they actually have made it like almost illegal to do, I don't know, I think to be considered an independent contractor. I saw somewhere, uh, some story from the UK that said it's increasingly difficult to be classified as someone other than an employee. So in other countries where the gig economy is burgeoning, government is clamping down on it. And that's a path we could take if we're not careful. So that's kind of the proactive in a nutshell. I probably rambled on. I apologize. Oh, no, that's a- I think that's the the craziest thing about most of this legislation is that it is huge. Yes. Like this this one is dozens of pages, and that's small compared to a lot of the ones we're actually seeing coming across people's desks. And mm-hmm. that's kind of part of the problem is that it's very easy to cherry pick very specific elements of a bill, promote it as if that's the entire bill, and then people just don't understand the full depths of it. So I think yeah, thank you for sort of taking us into some some of the details there. Regarding Joe Biden, though, he seems to have had this very strange flip in the last couple of weeks where he suddenly started talking about unions again. Like he had that random moment in that press conference where he talked about the middle class building America and then he randomly mm-hmm. shouted and, and the unions built them, which is just patently false, but you know, classic Joe Biden. So do you think this is kind of part of his goal to just pay out effectively the unions who are very, very powerful members in, of the Democratic Party, not necessarily of the labor force, but when it comes to the Democratic Party, they're always huge donors. We've seen their power come across when, like with teachers unions, for example, mm-hmm. the fact that they are the power keeping ch- children from getting their education. It's clearly not all about the kids, it's about the power. And so where do you see this going in terms of not just the PRO Act, but labor laws and union laws in general with Biden at the helm? Yeah, I think from, if you look at history, I would say, from past administrations, I think 
someone actually made this really great point to me and I'm going to reiterate it. I forget who said it to me, but I'm going to make this point and credit someone else for conceiving (laughs) it. But an individual told me recently, and it really is, I think, relevant to the PROACS discussion and just this emphasis on uh, appeasing labor interests, why Biden is doing it, throwing them a bone, although he did throw them under, under the bus with the Keystone Pipeline's cancellation. But President Obama, when he was in charge, he won with labor support, but he didn't follow through with a lot of labor stuff, mm-hmm. from what I recall. Um, I was a teenager for a good chunk of that, and I was entering college and, and doing all that. And I was pretty early in my young professional career. And I, re- I was following closely, but I don't recall exactly what he did with labor, uh, except for he, he was throwing them a bone occasionally, at least rhetorically speaking. He gave them a seat at the table for sure when it came to education. Mm-hmm. But labor policy, but um, in this form and fashion, was not really evident under his administration. He was focused on health care. He was focused on cash for clunkers, stimulus Uh, all these different policies and attacking Republicans, of course, and going after them with various different scandals, IRS and Joe Biden, because he wants to, I guess, throw them a bone, give them thanks for helping to elect him. I think he probably pulled away a lot of labor support Trump had won over from Mm -hmm. Democrats, probably people who were, I don't know if they were confused or if they just felt they trusted him better. Maybe they have buyer's remorse now. It'll be uh, remains to be seen there. But yeah, I think it is along the lines of he wants to stay true to kind of the big labor roots. And I also want to make a point about the PRO Act. While I am very conservative, politically speaking, this movement to protect the right to freelance is actually quite bipartisan Mm -hmm. and even transpartisan and and supersedes partisan politics. I've actually seen far more Democrats, hard left people even, who are mad at their party. They're mad at Joe Biden for pushing this. And there was a great column in NBC Think Tank from actually a very staunch supporter, a woman who's actually faced a lot of threats for openly speaking out against the PRO Act now, actually. And um, a lot of Democrats are very disappointed. I would hope that they realize that he campaigned on this. Maybe they Mm -hmm. see the error in their ways, but I'm not going to judge them and, and demean them. You know, I understand people vote party party lined. And it's very hard for people to break away over one issue. It's really, really hard, especially in these polarized times, unless you are really, really passionate about this issue. I think the second amendment is something that can pull people away if they incline themselves to the left or in the center or, or a libertarian or whatever, and they may vote Republican, but this issue has actually created an opening where a lot of Democrats feel very betrayed by their party elders, by leadership And they feel like they're not being heard, Uh, maybe the exception of five Democrats in the Senate Mm -hmm. who haven't come out in support of the PRO Act. But that would be uh, Cinema, Mark Kelly of Arizona, both of them, uh, Joe Manchin, Angus King, and also one of my senators, Mark Warner, who actually is a business owner. So I've been very, very piqued by the fact that those five in particular, I mean, Manchin and Cinema don't surprise me because they're they try to buck their party at times. And they actually did under Trump's administration. I think they voted with him across both congressional sessions, like 50 something percent of the time. Mm-hmm. So they they have some maverick tendencies, hopefully more than just rhetoric. <laughs> but especially with this, um, especially with Arizona being a right to work state, a huge right to work state. I don't mm-hmm. see those two, at least one of those senators not sponsoring it and voting for it. But not sponsoring doesn't necessarily translate to yeah. not voting for it. So we have to be careful with that. But 
I want to stress the kind of bipartisan nature, and I've been tweeting about this kind of like a mad woman, about how this issue actually can unite people and bring people together. We hear this talk about unity, and I'm like, this is one of the few issues that can bring people together. It's over a third of the workforce, almost 40% of the workforce that's going to be displaced and put out of work by a simple wave of the pen. If they're not going to do it by congressional decree or passing bills in Congress, they want to do it in the infrastructure bill, although we keep hearing inklings and, and mutter utterances that this won't even get into the infrastructure bill. The fact that they're sneaking it in is very suspect. Uh, it has nothing to do with crumbling roads, bridges, buildings. Very interesting insertion there. I, I know with different congressional bills, they often do uh, put in some extra stuff to make just it for more, fun. just, for, yeah, just fun. for fun, but this really is not germane <laughs> to infrastructure and actually would do the exact opposite of bolstering mm -hmm. infrastructure by any means. But yeah, it's, it's one issue that has really put people together, Trump supporters, Trump haters, people who are ambivalent, Republicans, Democrats, independents, people of all different racial backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, religions mm -hmm. over the cause of supporting the sector of the economy. So I am a little hopeful. And while many feel like they were duped by Joe Biden, maybe more of them speaking out will get them to get their party to listen. Maybe it'll help stop the bill. But I think they're listening, sadly, more so to Richard Trumka, the SCIU, the AFL-CIO, perhaps teachers unions and others who wield a lot of power. And if they follow through with this, I don't know if we're going to see a lot of people leaving the Democrat Party over this issue, but I think a lot of them are going to maybe consider voting for Republicans mm -hmm. if this is an issue that really gets them excited and something. Obviously, I think anytime you perhaps undergo a political conversion is when you are personally afflicted by policies. Mm -hmm. It takes one policy. For me, I've always been consistently conservative, but I think what you see sometimes, and we saw this in the last few years, a lot of people who are formerly Democrats, and we see this now, a lot of a few people who were prominent Democrats have switched now to Republican. And sometimes it does happen on the other side too. You switch from Republican to Democrat. It's a lot less common mm -hmm. uh, than that, but it, it, you have to note that of course it can go both ways. But I think if uh, Joe Biden and his party pursue this, I think they will lose a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to quantify it, but I, I can foresee, let's say this, contingent perhaps it turns into really active voters people who vote with their wallet more so uh, with respect to freelancing and and maybe it'll get it'll create some sort of new coalition some new movement but what we see now is is really exciting despite all the bad stuff that is happening the gaslighting by union mm -hmm. interests and i think it is bringing people together and it, it gives me hope in this really highly polarized time to see people coming together to protect each other's livelihoods mm -hmm. and even with my platform, however big or small it is, like, I just want to use it to help people because, you know, if, if my livelihood goes, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be really upset. And so this is, this is personal for me mm -hmm. and I want to be a siren for this. So others can also get involved. I don't want just to occupy and suck all the oxygen on this issue. And I don't want to be the only person sounding the alarm on this. I want others who are also similarly in my position as freelancers to speak out about this, to forewarn people what can happen, mm -hmm. to fight back against perhaps people in their own party, uh, with the case of progressive Democrats, to just really point to them like this is going to have a lot of implications. Look at California. Look at what happens. There are already laws in place. You just have to 
implement and follow through kind of like with gun laws. We have a problem with enforcement, same with labor law. The National Labor Relations Act doesn't need to go back into the past. We need to keep right to work laws. We need to be able to allow independent contractors like myself to identify not only symbolically, but also in our tax forms (laughs) to be able to identify as independent contractors. So that's a lot to unpack. But I'm, I'm happy that I was able to give a big picture, but I wanted to highlight that because I think it would mm-hmm. be really imprudent of me to not talk about that, even though I am kind of yoked in one way politically, <laughs> I, I really want to stress that. And, and there's so many different people, far more experts on this subject. There are so many people, they don't have as big a platform as me, but they're the real leaders and fighters mm-hmm. in this. I'm just someone who can help amplify and I've been trying my best to help amplify, but there, there's so many individuals behind the scenes who are really speaking out and they deserve the credit. Wonderful. I mean, thank you. Thank you again for giving that overview. I also think it's important that you brought up the fact that it's bipartisan or transpartisan. Right. I think the phrase you used was, <laughs> and I, I hope that the GOP are smart this time and kind of embrace these bipartisan issues because they do exist. Like there are, I, it's not just labor. Issues. There are several areas of life where people can meet more than in the middle. And mm-hmm. I, I certainly hope that, especially with Biden being as he is and so much for unity, but I really hope that the GOP can rally around this and try and profit on some of that hope that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, so to have a really, really raw and like neck breaking pivot to move from the, the deep in the weeds of the PRO Act, before um, we started the podcast, you actually mentioned something that I didn't know that you actually that your start in conservatism wasn't actually sort of the normal story we hear. So I would love for you to like talk us through that. It's a really exciting story from what I've gathered. Yeah, I would be happy to illuminate on that. So I was yoked into conservatism. It was passed through the bloodstream. I've made no shyness about this. Like I've talked about this on Twitter. I've written about this extensively, but I'm really proud to be a daughter of immigrants from Lithuania, formerly occupied by the Soviet Union. They came at the height of Reagan's second term in January 1986. On January 9th, they just celebrated what we call their freedomversary, their 35th freedomversary <laughs> in this country. And I love celebrating that. It's, it's a fun little tradition we have in my family. And having parents who experienced it, largely post-Stalin mm-hmm. Soviet Union, but my grandparents had and suffered under the brunt of Stalinist Soviet Union. And you just learn from early on and just having those family experiences, what not to do, how not to accept certain things, to always question authority, to always challenge yourself, to think critically, to be aware of your surroundings. And to, I think an important lesson I always learned is to always to treat people how they want to be treated. And growing up as a first generation American, I got to see a lot of that. I got to see my parents struggle you know, if they had some financial problem, when it was the big economic collapse in 2008, it was really hard to see what happened. You know, you see different things all across your life. You talk to your grandparents, you hear their stories, you learn from your parents, what your grandparents and great grandparents had to go through other relatives, people they knew neighbors. And it's pretty harrowing. And I got to meet one of my grandfathers only once before he died, unfortunately, but he was the one grandparent I had who I talk about sometimes who survived 18 months in one of Stalin's gulags in the Russian Finnish border. And when you hear his story, although he didn't tell it himself, my dad was able to kind of relay his story. And my mom was able to confirm that, but you just hear what he went through. And it's just so appalling that historians today, many of them 
give a pass to the Soviet crimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, to communism in general. Um, not every historian, of course, but a lot of people are revisionists. They want to just kind of toss that aside. They only view one strain of authoritarian authoritarianism, excuse me, as the worst thing. I think you can pit Nazism and global communism on the same footing. They're both mm-hmm. evil totalitarian regimes and ideologies. And Lithuania, where my parents came from, actually experienced both. It had illegal occupations of both the Nazi regime and also the Soviet Union. In what was the area that's called the Bloodlands. And there's actually a great book by Professor Timothy Snyder, who politically I think is a little out there. I don't agree with his politics, but as a historian contextualizing what happened across both of those Mm -hmm. regimes, he's excellent. And I really recommend that book. And, you know, I hear these stories all the time. Certainly I had anecdotes. The family stories mark me and, and define me for who I am politically kind of philosophically and as an individual, but I also back up my family stories with different accounts, written documents, of course, Mm -hmm. novels, books. I think it's important to be informed all across the board and to cite source material, not just obviously firsthand family account or secondhand in my case, because I didn't directly experience it. People think I did. I was born five years after my parents came here, but I have the luxury of being someone who's lived in their shadow, Mm -hmm. heard everything always been around Eastern European accents. Like I've met so many wonderful people kind of in this diaspora, although it's kind of loosely organized. My parents wanted to be assimilated into this country. They still retained their tongue and their languages and their customs, but they wanted to be American. And sometimes it was really hard for them to meet like-minded people in Lithuanian circles. So they opted to sometimes stay away, but we would go celebrate cultural things. But when they came to this country, obviously they were really optimistic about their prospects here. My dad was able to start a construction business. My mom rose the ranks in corporate America. So I've seen them live the American dream with all the hard facets Mm -hmm. and different obstacles their way. And it just gives you a greater appreciation as a kid of refugees or political refugees like I am and in my unique position to see that and to really cherish what I had. And I asked my parents, I'm like, I'm glad, or I tell them on occasion, like, I'm really glad we were born here that we didn't settle in Canada. You didn't settle mm-hmm. in New York city. You didn't settle in Boston or wherever. I, I really enjoyed settling in Southern California at the time when it was still pretty Republican and, and not so <laughs> not crazy. Anymore. Yeah. In certain portions, you still get a little bit, but it, it's increasingly harder, unfortunately. But when my parents settled in the United States, obviously, I mean, they knew it wasn't a perfect place, but they, they recognized that it's the last beacon of hope they can come obviously virtually penniless Mm -hmm. and try to make the best of it in this country. And I'm very fortunate to still have them around. And we talk all the time about freedom, politics, all these different things. I asked for comparisons. Were these policies in effect? Are we seeing any similarities now? Are you worried? So I, I look to my parents for guidance on these different things. And I see my dad sometimes be very frustrated with the state Mm -hmm. of politics because He's like, I could totally help these people. I'm not some like political strategist, but I could help people understand different issues. And yeah, it gets frustrating sometimes when people see restrictions on liberties. Mm-hmm. I mean, who experienced clampdowns of it in, in different totalitarian regimes? They get frustrated and obviously they they want to speak out about it and they can draw the comparisons. Obviously, we're not at that level. <laughs> I, I want to make that very clear. But, you know, hearing from people who who lived under these regimes firsthand, much like mm-hmm. what you hear with people who 
survived the Holocaust. I think it's important to defer to them, to learn about the horrors and to not repeat the past mistakes of those regimes. And it would be good if more people could equally condemn both communism and with Nazism in that same vein. And it is scary to see a lot of this thinking kind of percolate in mm-hmm. universities. I went to a UC school. I went to UC San Diego and we had a few Marxist professors, actually Herbert Marcuse, who everyone is talking about. It's really funny. He was a professor at my school, my alma mater for a short time, I think from the late seventies to early eighties, I think 75 to 80 mm-hmm. or 65 to 70. I don't remember. Oh no. 1965 to 1970. He was a professor at UC San Diego and he was a mentor to Angela Davis, a radical. And, uh, yeah, I, I got to experience it first in a, a little bit, but I think universities are worse now where this mm-hmm. is more openly embraced, unfortunately. So you see it kind of accepted in academia. Pop culture talks about this at length. People love to lionize like Che Guevara, Joseph yeah. Stalin at times. And it troubles me as someone whose grandparents suffered under the iron grip of Stalin's policies. Like it's unsettling to me. So I do my best to educate people about my family's story. I try to write anecdotally. I recommend people read books. There's actually one phenomenal journalist who has since passed. He died actually before the 2016 election. But if any of your viewers and listeners are curious about someone to look to for inspiration or books you want to learn about all this different stuff or what maybe our government might have been responsible for in some cases, uh, we actually unfortunately helped a few communists uh, get uh propped to power. And it, this is not crazy talk. If you read some government files and, and the reporting of M. Stanton Evans, you'll actually see that we actually helped install in some fashion uh, Mao Zedong in China. Uh, the State Department did. It's, it's pretty scary uh, what you it's read scary. from these differently revealed files um, and just kind of our nation's, I'm sorry, uh, FDR's kind of like affinity for Stalin mm-hmm. in some regard. There, so you you just kind of learn different things, and you're like, what happened in our government? Like, we really approved this, or we gave a nod to this? Like, this is really scary. So there are foremost experts, deceased and, and those who are still alive, who are really good on this subject. And yeah, I mean, I can share my family's story because I have proximity. They have proximity to the horrors in some aspects. But there's so many books out there. There's the Venona Papers in terms of how much communists had influence the United States government in some fashion or, or whatnot. You also have an excellent novel by a lady named Ruta Shepetis who wrote um, Ashes in the Snow. It's not to be con- or between shades of gray, but it was changed to Ashes in the Snow for the film adaptation because it sounded too much like Fifty Shades of Gray. But yeah. it's a historical fictional account and it chronicles a young woman who gets deported to the far east or not the far east to one of the siberian excuse me mm-hmm. gulags and chronicles her story of survival so it's kind of like an amalgamation kind of a composite of different real life stories but in a fictional lens so to not really get people so down on the horrors because it's a lot to absorb if you're just yeah. learning about it, it it's very depressing so she kind of i would say peppered it a little bit so it could be understandable to, to people who may be sensitive to this kind of stuff but she was really effective in her her novel so it's between shades of gray that's a great book um and she wrote a few others she wrote one more that relates to franco spain and then also to um it was like the equivalent of the titanic but in uh poland and in prussia excuse me uh, and it talks about different narratives and she kind of lumps it back to this 
first book between shades of gray and kind of communist oppression, Nazi uh, overtones there too. So yeah, you can have like historical fiction. Mm-hmm. Oh gosh. And there were so many, there was Richard Pipes who was a foremost historian. He passed away years ago. Oh gosh. And there were so many more, like there's so much to list and I can talk about this forever, but yeah, I think it's a combination of me doing my due diligence as someone who can see into it, having had family members who mm-hmm. experience it, but also as a freelance journalist and someone who's really serious about scholarship on the subject, you do have to back up your stuff by source material. There's also the Black Book of Communism, which I haven't finished yet, but it's it's a good book to read too. And there's just so many others. But yeah, you can combine family stories and scholarship. And I think that's that's possible um, without cheapening, you know, anti-socialism or anti-communist type activities. I think we see efforts sometimes cheapened too much by people who want to make a quick buck yeah. or appease their donors. And I'm like, we have to do more than just say socialism sucks. Okay, explain why. And yes. can we talk about the positives in the alternatives, why it's better and why this is the way for prosperity and success and happiness rather than just own the libs or own these people. We have to be substantive, I think, with respect to this. So I think someone like me who has some you know, knowledge of this, who can help communicate between people who live there and, and people who are removed from the horrors, I think someone like myself should be in a position to help educate people. And I still need to do more myself. And my goal is to kind of help people through my different endeavors to, to educate and also to kind of put my dad out there or some other family member out there to, to talk about the subject. Cause I think people learn when they hear firsthand mm-hmm. from those who witnessed it or experienced it in some form or fashion. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. It was absolutely fascinating to hear you talk about communism from an actual perspective where you understand what it means beyond just, oh, socialism, communism is bad. Uh, I'm afraid we're running out of time. I know you have to get going. Thank you so much for joining me. Where can people find you online? Sure. I am on all the social media platforms. Everyone is on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. On several of those accounts, I'm denoted by a blue check mark. Not too hard to find me. I also have a YouTube channel, which is burgeoning and growing. So connect with me there. I also write town hall columns. You can find those Mondays and Fridays. Most of the time, I also run a podcast called district of conservation. And maybe we'll talk about conservation again Mm -hmm. in the future. Perfect. Well, thank you so much again for coming on. And I can't wait to talk to you again. My pleasure.